You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a robust U.S. labor market spells bad news for financial markets. Today's jobs report sent shares tumbling as investors predict more rate hikes. We're going to talk about why tech is in a particularly tough position. Plus, chip makers warn of a major industry slowdown, sending tech shares even lower. The biggest names from AMD to Samsung and Micron are all saying the same thing. Demand is tumbling. We're going to have more on that in a moment. And Facebook is sending its own warning to users. You may have been hacked. Meta says one million user logins may have been stolen, compromised. Later this hour, we're going to talk to Meta's security policy director chip makers warning weekly that demand is faltering this as they face surging shipping and materials costs and in the latest sign of trouble samsung and amd reporting these disappointing results bloomberg's ian king our resident chip expert with us now so ian didn't we know demand was bad why are we seeing such a strong reaction here you're absolutely right we've had companies going out there for a while now saying yeah things are things are getting bad we've got a lot of inventory what happened yesterday provoked analysts to be writing reports with expletives in the headlines. I mean, it was really bad for AMD. And Ed actually sold Samsung a bit short. Yes, it's the biggest memory chip maker, but it's also the world's biggest chip maker. company like that comes out and says, yeah, things are actually bad. It's, it's not just bad, but it's way worse than we thought. So that's kind of recalibrating people's expectations. They're no longer just looking for the bottom. They're back to worrying about how bad they get. Meantime, Ian, you've got the White House adding new restrictions on China's access to U.S. chip technology. Is that making things worse here? Absolutely. That's, a, that's an ongoing concern because you've, this isn't just 
one isolated incident. This is like an incremental set of increases of intensification in this dispute between the world's two largest economies. And, you know, if you're an investor out there, you're thinking, well, what's going to happen next? And the trend within these, you know, so-called um, security-related, um, national security-related measures is, is to intensify, is to broaden them. And that's going to place greater restrictions on chip makers that want to do business in China. A little bit more about what's behind these new rules from Washington and how you expect these to evolve. Well, just to, to give you an example, we had a, a story out earlier this week which said that Huawei, which is a company that we know, a Chinese company that's been on this sort of entity list in the US for a long time, being cut off from US technology, is actually taking steps to work around that. So obviously, there is a concern in Washington. There are a lot of in Washington who are saying, look, we need to get tougher. We need to do more and more to really choke off China's ability that just being better than China at technology isn't good enough. We have to make sure that we freeze China's technology and we're multiple generations ahead. And that's what's driving this. So how do you think this is going to impact the, the ongoing relationship between the U.S. and China as it pertains to chips? Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen any reaction from Beijing yet. And I've heard people say we're surprised that Beijing has been so restrained so far. Fundamentally, China is the largest market for semiconductors. If you're a U.S. company, if you're a European company in the industry, you have to be there. You have to have those sales, that revenue to fuel your investing in innovation to stay ahead. So it's a it's a very difficult situation for Washington to sort of navigate that fine line between cutting off China from what it doesn't want it to have and also keeping the money flowing and keeping U.S. companies having that R&D edge and, and staying on the leading edge in terms of the technical ability. All right. Ian King, who's, of course, covered the chip industry for a couple of decades. Ian, thank you um, for your expert insights today. Appreciate it. Meantime, Tesla's all-electric truck will roll out before the end of the year. In a tweet, Elon Musk said production has begun, and the first deliveries will head to PepsiCo December 1st. The big rig was first unveiled November 2017, but the launch delayed many times due to battery cell shortages and a decision to focus on consumer models. As we discussed at the top of the show, it was a brutal day on Wall Street after the September jobs report. The Nasdaq 100 plunging more than 4% as more severe Fed rate hikes are priced into the markets. Chip makers got crushed after manufacturers warned of an industry-wide slowdown in demand. I want to bring in Sarah Kunst, Managing Director at Clio Capital. So, Sarah, how alarming are these warnings from chip makers in your view? I mean, the only chips right now anyone wants are potato, right? Like this is not good for chip makers. Uh, there's twin pressures here, right? Certainly the weakened consumer demand for things like PCs, but also, you know, the increasing restrictions around selling to China mean that a massive market is, is largely off limits. And so that's also going to cause problems for the hardware companies because, you know, they're the ones who aren't buying the chips. So they're not selling hardware. And I think Apple's, you know, lowered forecasts for, for some of the models of 
its new iPhone was sort of an early indicator of the trouble to come. So when you look at other areas of technology, you know, there's social media, there's advertising, there's streaming, you know, where do you see other potential problem areas? Everywhere. Uh, you know, I, I think that that it's just going to be a tough, uh, you know, quarter. I think that that advertising, you know, we're seeing a slump based on the waning consumer demand. So, you know, Google, Pinterest, Snap, Meta, they're all probably going to be in for a tough holiday season. And, you know, most of the rallies right now in tech, they're not based on fundamentals. And, and the reality is that the facts show a really bleak picture for all of these really high priced, often unprofitable companies that just have flown so high over the last few years. And even now when their stock prices are coming down, you look at, you know, their, their PE ratios, they're still insane. These are just still really expensive companies. So how much more tech volatility are you preparing for? Like, are, are, are you preparing for this downturn to last a good long time? Uh, yeah, I am a bear preparing for a long, cold winter. Um, I think it's there's just not a lot to be bullish about right now in the U.S., you know, with the Fed's very hawkish stance even today about inflation. And, you know, the right the rate hikes are going to continue until the morale improves. And that's probably not till mid to late 23. And then globally, things are just way worse. Right. We are the bright spot right now globally. Uh, you know, the U.K. is in is in chaos. You know, Russia, China. Uh, all of the, the problems that global central banks are having because of the U.S. dollar strength right now, there's just a lot of problems. And I think you have to batten down the hatches. You know, I'm a fan of selling rallies right now if you can get out with a profit on something and, and just buying the dips really carefully. Like if you're passionate about a core business and see a reasonable P.E. ratio and it's a historic low for the company, maybe consider buying. But I'm not even looking at like the 52 week or year to date right now numbers. I'm looking at the five year charts and saying, is this company, you know, where it was before COVID or is it still priced way higher because of the bump it got during the pandemic? So how is this impacting your strategy and, and other venture capitalists strategy? I mean, we've been talking about all this dry powder that's probably stacking up on the sidelines with nowhere to go. Yeah. So, you know, I think M&A is the new IPO for companies. I think right now startups are are less focused on an IPO. You know, we saw that a lot of those tech IPOs aren't working. Um, you know, Poshmark's exit from the public markets was was a big piece of that. You know, the Peloton CEO flat out saying that, you know, six more months and, and they're going to sell out and, and, you know, go private. is It's a good indicator that, that staying public as an unprofitable tech company right now is just tough. So I think that we're going to see a lot more late stage M&A activity and less bell ringing. And, you know, when it comes to the dry powder, VCs have a lot of it, but they're sitting on it. You know, what I'm hearing from my peers at Top Decile Funds, they're spending more time in Monday meetings triaging their current portfolios than they are looking at new deals. And this is in large part because these, you know, these new deals, founders are still asking for 2021 prices from VCs who are very much in a 2020 recession mindset. And I think until VCs can get into deals at prices that better reflect this moment, a lot of my peers are just sitting on the sideline and focusing on following on the companies they're already on boards of who are likely to have a tough time in the coming months. 
So talking about late stage M&A, got to ask your thoughts on the latest in the Elon Musk Twitter saga. Twitter, you know, holding Musk to the terms of the deal, uh, you know, at the price, not accepting anything lower. Musk saying, OK, uh, I'll go through with it. You know, what's your take on what's happening here and whether or not this deal is actually going to happen? I mean, so many embarrassing text messages, just so many <laughs> Saudi hack level embarrassing text messages. Right. And and I think that the, the whole situation is just getting to a point where, you know, Elon's displaying what seems to be a rare moment of accepting reality and saying, look, I agreed to buy it. So now I'm going to have to buy it. And, you know, I think that that's the best outcome for shareholders. Will that be the best outcome for Twitter users, for Twitter employees? I don't know. No, but at this point, it looks like that's what's going to happen. All right. Sarah Kunst, Managing Director, Clio Capital. Love having you here, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us on this volatile Friday afternoon. Okay, coming up, Disney and DraftKings. A Bloomberg report about a DraftKings ESPN deal in the works sends shares higher. But how does the family brand embrace sports gambling? Talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. ESPN is nearing a large new partnership with sports betting firm DraftKings, a deal which would pave the way for the media giant to capitalize on the growing wave of legalized sports betting. Shares of DraftKings spiked this afternoon on this Bloomberg report. Disney already has a stake in DraftKings. Here to discuss our Bloomberg deals reporter, Crystal Z. So what do we know about this agreement, Crystal? So, so far, all we know is that there is an intention for a large partnership between DraftKings and uh, ESPN, which is owned by Disney. 
but how exactly is this deal going to be structured? How is it going to be paid? We still don't have much detail on it, but it would be a really, really big step for ESPN to really take advantage of that legalizing sports betting in almost half of the country now. And it will be a real cultural shock for ESPN because Disney has this really wholesome um, image that they have and uh, getting into sports betting is actually a really, really big step. Now, there's been speculation about an acquisition. Is this a step in that direction or no? So because of that cultural difference, um, it will. right now we're not hearing about an outright acquisition. So in order to do that, uh, so DraftKings here is the license holder for sports betting. So if ESPN really want to get into it in a really, really big way, it would make sense for them to buy. And also note that DraftKings stock price is trading around $16, uh, but it's high in March. Uh, last year was around 72 So you could say that it's a really, really cheap buy. But for Disney shareholder to get over that wholesomeness, reputation of uh, Disney, it will still be a big leap. And uh, we're not sure if that's um, if they're ready to make that step yet. So actually, a lot of analysts have dismissed that M&A speculation, but we shall see. What about when it comes to you know other sports gambling platforms more broadly? I feel like I've heard about draft. We've heard some DraftKings M&A um, speculation for a couple of years. So DraftKings is in a really really competitive space, and they they are constantly at war with um, places like FanDuel, and they're all offering these really really cheap uh, discount or even giving um, users free money just to get on their platform. So there is a lot of room for consolidation and. With this partnership with ESPN, even how it looks like, it will still be unclear. It could really emerge looking like a new platform. It could look like an ESPN platform, or it could look like an extra button on the existing ESPN app. So it could probably look like it would look more crowded um, than than less. But you're right. Like There could be more deals. DraftKings uh, hasn't been public for that long. They only went public through a SPAC uh, a year-ish ago. So whether they are ready to take on a big deal, it's also... Um, waiting to be seen and you know obviously the stock price not doing too well for them to sell equity would also be really challenging so there will be consolidation in the space uh, we just don't know who are buying who is selling yet and what's your take on the pace of M&A and IPOs through the end of the year given this is your beat and we've where, you know, we just had a guest who said she's bundling up for a long, cold winter. Yeah, she was just saying how uh, M&A is a new IPO, right? And that's absolutely true. We haven't really seen many, many IPOs. And usually this time, uh, post-Labor Day, pre-Thanksgiving has historically been the most popular time for IPO, and we haven't really seen any of them. And um, there's always been speculation about, you know, there have been one or two companies that could still go public this year. And it, it's been quiet, and, you know, M&A is also, M&A is coming back in some way, but financing has been extremely challenging. And if you look at technology that are growing uh, and not really generating cash flow, those are not things that investors are liking right now. So all in all, if you're a growth company that are looking to IPO or do an M&A, it's still a really, really tough environment. So um, a lot of uh, deal makers are saying that we should probably expect deal making to come back in 2023, even in the second quarter, not even the first quarter. And all of that would be market dependent, obviously. So um, we, will, we will continue to track it. All right. The second quarter of 2023, uh, we'll be looking towards that. Bloomberg's Crystal Z, thank you so much for stopping by. And as we talk about media companies looking for ways to cash in as more U.S. states legalize sports betting, Bloomberg The Lineup with Damien Sassauer and Kaylee Lyons continues the conversation tonight, 7 p.m. New York time. You don't want to miss it. 
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to the markets and the big story of the week, Elon and his Twitter takeover. Potentially not a done deal yet. Our Ed Ludlow um, has been looking a little deeper here. Ed, what's the latest that we know? Yeah, well, Friday was unusual, Em, and so far there was absolutely no news about the deal at all, which was a massive relief for me <laughs> and you because we haven't slept for four days. But you would look at this monster jump in Twitter shares from Tuesday when we had that disclosure that Elon Musk had gone back to Twitter and backed the original offer, $54.20 a share. But in the four sessions that have followed, the stock has trickled lower again because there are concerns concerns about the financing element of this deal, how likely it is to happen. And we still continue to look at the spread, right? If we bring up the spread chart, this is the gap between that $54.20 per share offer and the current share price. And again, it has noticeably come down in recent sessions. The latest, as you know, Em, is that Judge Kathleen St. Jude McCormick of Delaware Chancery Court has suspended, paused the trial until October 28th and told the two sides that they need to close the deal by 5 p.m. on October October 28th. If they do not, then we're heading to trial in November. And the market is trying to pass what's actually happening behind the scenes. In the broader context of markets, a really interesting stock to watch is, of course, Tesla. Tesla just had its worst week since March of 2020. March of 2020. And it's not just the idea that Elon Musk might have to sell Tesla shares in order to fund some of the financing to buy Twitter, but also this idea that there's key man risk, that he'll be distracted if he runs a third company on top of Tesla and SpaceX. But the gap between the S&P 500 performance and Tesla, it's been a real drag on a points basis for that broader index. And it's not just, of course, the news cycle. Tesla does trade at higher multiple and so is vulnerable to the narrative around higher rates. But, you know, so much going on at work here. You and I are not going to Delaware on October 17th, but on a daily basis, we continue to track this deal. All right. Ed Ludlow, hope you get some sleep this weekend. Well, you might have received an alert from Meta today saying you may have logged onto Facebook from a malicious app. What does that mean? Well, Meta has reported more than 400 credential theft malware apps to Google and Apple targeting mobile users' uh, devices to steal their Facebook login information. The apps were disguised as things like photo editors, mobile games, health trackers, and they can target more than just Facebook accounts for more on this, Meta's Director of Threat Disruption, David Agronovich, joins me now. David, thank you so much for joining us. So talk to us about these apps, what happened, and how people can protect themselves. Thanks so much for having me, Emily, and appreciate the opportunity to talk about this report. Today, we released some research into 400 malicious mobile applications. They were designed to steal Facebook login information, and the apps were listed on the Google Play Store, on Apple's App Store, and they would disguise themselves as a variety of different things, VPN services, business apps, mobile games, different utilities for your phone to try and trick people into downloading them. How do you know if you've been affected? Like, how can you tell? So because these applications are available on the open Internet, it's no single company can protect people alone. We also know that these scammers constantly adapt to detection um, by app stores, by researchers. Now, here we reported our findings to Apple and to Google. And as far as we know, all of these applications have been taken down. 
But we also are sending notifications to users on our platform who may have been impacted by these applications. Um, those notifications will include some steps that people can take to protect their accounts more effectively, as well as some tips for how to spot these types of applications elsewhere on the internet. Why are you doing this now? I mean, surely this has happened before, right? So our teams have been investigating this type of malicious application activity for years. We're always looking for malware or other efforts to uh, steal people's credentials. Um, but this particular PSA is the first time we're releasing one of these kind of public service announcements. And the idea is that in addition to working to get these apps taken down and providing tools for people to identify those apps, we felt it was important for people to have tips that they can use, both to keep themselves safer on our platform and also to stay safe across the Internet so that they know what to look for if someone's trying to target them with an application like this. Now, you also worked at the U.S. government. You led uh, efforts to address foreign interference in democratic systems and elections. We've got a midterm election coming up. What are you most concerned about and how ready do you think Meta is this time? So whenever there's an election, we know we have to stay vigilant. Um, our teams are continuing to monitor for any kind of threats on, the, on our platform. And a good example of this would be just last week. We released a report into two influence operations, one from Russia, one from China, um, that we caught very early. Um, but in that report, we included a bunch of information about what they were doing, what we had found, uh, who we believe was behind the activity. And in that case, like we did with the malicious apps investigation today, we shared information with our partners across the industry, with the U.S. government and with the public to make sure people knew what to expect and what we were seeing. Um, I spoke with Frances Haugen earlier this week, the Facebook whistleblower, and she raised some concerns about safety and security in social media, and she used an interesting metaphor. Take a listen to this. Right now, we can't see behind the curtain of social media. We were able to push for safety features in cars or found in the Department of Transportation, you know, reducing the fatality rate from automobile accidents by effectively three and a half times because we could actually control cars. You know, we could crash test them. Right now, we can't do any of those things with social media. We can't crash test it. We can't confirm how it could be safer. So we don't know what to demand. What do you think of her thought there? And do you think more regulation would help? So I think that the security area that my team focuses on is an area where we've we've worked very uh, hard to be transparent about our work. We've reported on more than 150 coordinated inauthentic behavior influence operations over the last several years uh, that originated from more than 50 different countries that operated in more than 30 different languages. We've reported on, on uh, cyber espionage activity, um, hacking activity, both uh, related to our platform and more broadly across the Internet. I do think that there's always more work to be done in the security space, but I think that the more important work here is that we are sharing information with our industry partners, that we're sharing with governments where appropriate, and really importantly, that we're sharing with the public, that we're publicizing these reports, publicizing our findings, enabling the research into these types of behaviors, not just on our platform, but across the internet in general. There's also some, uh, you know, been some broader questions lately about how much Meta is investing in not just English uh, language platforms. Obviously, you've got, you know, tens of thousands people of people working on trust and safety around the world. What can you tell us about how much of that investment is focused on on languages other than English? So our security work is global. 
Um, as I mentioned, we've taken down more than 150 of these of these coordinated inauthentic behavior operations around the world. Those operations operated for more than 50 different countries in more than 30 different languages. And so we're making sure that we're protecting people on our platform wherever they happen to be from threats wherever they may happen to originate. Again, there's always more work to be done here, um, but by focusing on on violating behaviors and threats across the platform, we can do our utmost to keep people safe. I know in the security world, there's always something keeping folks up at night. What's keeping you up at night? So right now we are laser focused on protecting elections around the world. Of course, the U.S. midterms coming up uh, pretty soon, the Brazil elections that just happened. Um, our teams are constantly monitoring for security threats um, related to those elections, as well as broader global potential threats. This is probably a conversation we can also have after the midterms about what we end up seeing. <laughs> All right. I would like that. David Agronovich, Meta Director of Threat Disruption. Thank you for stopping by. All right. Coming up, our next guest just raised $11 million despite the worst crypto downturn in years. We're going to talk about growing demand for crypto accounting software next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus. Time now for our crypto report. And today we're focusing on crypto accounting after Tactics' $11 million funding round led by FTX. Bloomberg's Shanali Basik is in New York. Shanali, take it away. Thank you so much, Emily. We're going to bring in Tactic founder and CEO and Jaskew because it's such an interesting thing to see another company raise money in this crypto downturn. But with so much volatility in crypto markets, your clients must have a hard time here in terms of getting a handle on what it's worth and how to account for it. So what is the biggest challenge your clients are facing here amid the volatility, not just among Bitcoin, but all sorts of Web3 assets? I think it's just the fragmentation of activity. We're seeing people use different blockchains across different wallets and different currencies, and it's just very difficult to get a holistic view of the digital asset ecosystem. 
Well, it's interesting because it's not just, to your point, digital assets. Currencies are also fluctuating like crazy. So, I mean, how does that kind of compound the issues here? Is it harder now to account for cryptocurrencies than it had been even a year ago for some reasons? I don't know that it's inherently more difficult. I think it's inherently more important, though, given the increased regulatory scrutiny in the space. Well, the regulatory scrutiny also, I mean, rules have changed and you've seen other companies like MicroStrategy really mold to the accounting here of crypto when it comes to Bitcoin. So how might the rules keep on changing that will make it different for firms to have to mold to what the regulators ask of them? I think what we're seeing actually is a lot of activity in tech companies. So venture capital firms remain extremely bullish on the potential applications of blockchain technology, and that translates to more capital for tech companies. Now, we're seeing venture capital pool across all sectors and especially in the crypto space, but venture firms still have a lot of committed capital to deploy. They're definitely slowing the pace there, but that means they're looking much more closely at financials of crypto companies before they continue to fund them. And right now, the, the landscape is so complicated and fragmented that without automation and tools like Tactic, it's increasingly difficult for these companies to survive. Okay, so that's interesting because you yourself obviously just were kind of in the market here when it came to fundraising. What are VCs asking of firms in the crypto world here to get more comfort of what's going on there? I think they want a, uh, a clearer view of financials the same way they would for any traditional company. And right now, if a lot of that revenue or a lot of that spend is coming in the form of a token, it's much more difficult to track than it is a, an ordinary U.S. dollar. So if it's in the form of a token, I'm wondering, even for yourself, how are you taking money from clients? How has your business been impacted in the crypto winter? So we actually operate almost entirely in traditional U.S. dollars and, and continue to use uh, traditional products in that space. And that's actually the way the bulk of our clients operate for the most part. So we, uh, we admittedly continue to live in a fiat world. A private company is going to pay for their office space, pay their employee salaries in U.S. dollars. But token spend and various cryptocurrencies are going to be an increasing part of their of their balance sheets as digital asset adoption continues. Now, when you're looking at crypto, you're talking about tokens. You already had kind of mentioned here the difficulties when it comes to accounting for them. But what about other assets, NFTs, other types of Web3 assets? How do you think about DAOs in this world when it comes to staying accountable to shareholders and regulators? I think that's a, an extremely difficult question right now to answer, and it's going to be unfolding in the next several months, how we govern something that is theoretically decentralized and isn't incorporated the way a traditional companies. And, you know, it's interesting. Another thing that makes this even possible is your work with other companies like Coinbase and custodians like that. Uh, how much do you see your work growing with custody solutions, both on the crypto side, if you will, and the traditional finance side? Oh, I think custody solutions are going to be absolutely crucial here. And that's why we're so excited to be backed by FTX as a leader in the space. We're backed by Coinbase as well because we acknowledge that there are going to be a lot of players in the ecosystem. Even though there's a longer term view of a lot of players in the ecosystem, the reality is it's a tough market now. And so if that's the case, I know you said that you operate in fiat, but how do you navigate your business through a time when clients are also having a tough time? I think we're very lucky to work with people who have long-term time horizons. So consumer demand has admittedly cooled for digital assets like NFTs, uh, as well as various tokens. Many retail investors who lost money are definitely staying away from cryptocurrency. 
However, if you look at financial institutions that have much longer time horizons, they're thinking five to 10 years out. They have not abandoned cryptocurrency as an asset class. Well, and Joskiu, thank you so much for your time. That is the Tactic founder and CEO. Thank you for walking us through the plan here. Emily, it's back to you. Shanali, thank you. Companies around the globe are facing the prospect of an energy crisis and volatility in chip supply. Those pressures will continue, according to the tech and EV components giant Bosch. Stefan Hartung, the top executive at Bosch, spoke with our own Ed Ludlow, Kriti Gupta, and Guy Johnson on the European Close. Take a listen. We're fighting against that, that supply shortage. So what we will see is even if the demand is slowing and even if some parts of uh, production is probably reallocated, there is still an over high demand and that will last for months. So even if we see recessive motions in the whole entire environment, the automotive industry, especially in the car side, will remain relatively stable for a certain amount of time. Give me some granularity in the supply chain. Where are the pain points still present? Where are things improving? And especially when we think about energy and input costs, where are you still fighting that supply chain inflation? Well, the real problem with the supply chain is still with the semiconductors, and that is special semiconductors which are used for automotive. So these are large, are large structures, so we're not talking about these 14 nanometer and below, but rather 100 nanometer or 90 nanometer, or lowest is probably about 40 or 23 for the controllers we use. So that still is short, even if we see that slowing down in the mobile phone market, which unlocks capacity in semiconductors, automotive supply will still be, let's say, at least reasonably constrained, even for the next year, there will not be a complete free speech, right? There will be always a bit of restrainment, so there's always some fight for the components. The energy part is definitely also a risk for those parts of the supply chain which are on the raw material side energy intensive. So here it's for us more a supplier question where we are with our partners in tight control, where are things going, what is on the pricing, and obviously that makes things not cheaper, it makes it more expensive. Well, what do you make of uh, the President Biden's big push to create some of this manufacturing manufacturing capacity right here in the United States. It's a plan that's going to last at least a decade to really get um, uh, fully operational. But is that something that you're positioning for or preparing for? Well, that resonates very much with us, right? Because we are, if you see us, very strong in Europe. We're also reasonably strong in Asia, but we see ourselves underrepresented here. We are here since 1906 in the North America. We are strong, but we should be much stronger. So that resonates very well. I'm very happy that this policy comes into place. We are expanding. We are growing, we're buying companies, we're investing. We just announced an investment in Anderson and we will announce further investments in our facilities. We invest in Mexico, we expand into new companies we buy, like Hydroforce, we just bought that, which perfectly fits to us. So definitely the North American space, especially USA, is a big opportunity for us. This is the day that we, uh, we get news from Tesla uh, on the fact that it's going to be producing trucks uh, and we're starting to see those. Uh, Tesla planning to deliver semi-trucks to Pepsi. They unveiled them a while ago, but they're now starting to potentially look to deliver them. Stefan, do you think that the auto industry, the truck industry more broadly though, has been too focused on battery technology? 
Now, is both right? That's so interesting in the automotive and mobility world. Anything is right at the same time. You have to go heavily for electrification also in trucks, especially there are some medium-sized trucks but also some heavy trucks if they go in only short ranges where you need electrified trucks. Other machinery, you don't want electrification because the batteries are just too heavy, right? You can't use it. You don't have the electricity infrastructure or you have a too long range necessary or you drive over the whole day, which also may be a problem there. So I would say, yes, everything right. We just have to see how which technology finds which application, and that's what we have the market for. Stephen Hartung there, Bosch, chair of the management board with our own Ad Ludlow, Guy Johnson, and Kriti Gupta. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. You can stay with Bloomberg Television tonight. We've got The Lineup coming up with Damien Sassauer and Kaylee Lines. They talk about how media companies are looking to make a profit off the legalization of sports betting, 7 p.m. Eastern. And don't forget, check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.